Well, that is the hope of glory, not only that God would save us uh, from the penalty of our sin, but God also saves us from the power of our sin that we, too, can be changed and transformed for the glory of God. Well, if you want this last week, we begin a new series through Romans chapter 12 to the end of the book uh, called Transformed. And so if you weren't with us, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of last week's message, uh, not because I think it was so incredible, but because today really is the second part of a two part message uh, that I've entitled Altar Call. Uh, one of the key statements we looked at last week was the idea uh, that Warren Wearsby shared a, a comment. And here's what he said about this idea of becoming living sacrifices for the glory of God that Romans 12 talks about. And Warren Wearsby made this insightful comment. Here's what he said. He said, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. Let me paraphrase that quote this way. I really want to change. There are some things about me that I wish I could change. There are some habits I need to break. There are some thought patterns. There are some sin patterns that I really want to change. For whatever the reason is, I just can't seem to turn the corner. Like right about the time I lay my life on God's altar and say, God, I'm here to be used for your glory. I find myself crawling back off as quickly as I laid myself down. Anyone ever felt that way? I know I do. Frustrating and trying to grow and wanting to grow. It's what Paul said in Romans 7, that the things I want to do, I don't. The things which I wish I didn't do are the very things uh, that I do. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at how that actually works this morning. So let me invite you to take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to Romans chapter 12. Uh, for the second part of a message called Altar Call. Last week we learned that laying ourselves on the altar and, and surrendering our lives to God is a moment-by-moment choice. And the choice is simply this. Am I going to do, in this very moment, am I going to do what would gratify my sinful flesh, or am I going to self-sacrifice and place myself on the altar, and instead I'm going to choose to do what will bring God the most glory in this situation? And that's always the battle. And there are times where you're moving along and getting victory in the battle. There are times where you feel completely defeated and overwhelmed. And so the goal is to come to a place where more consistently we can stay with integrity that more, more consistently I'm choosing to glorify God. Yes, I still struggle with temptation. Yes, I still want to tell that person what I think or lash out in anger or, you know, whatever the case is. But, but more and more I'm choosing to glorify God in a moment by moment decision. So uh, this morning... Uh, we're just going to look at two verses again, and so that may be encouraging. Maybe you think you're going to get out early this morning. Pro- probably not. All right, let's just be honest. But we are going to look at just two verses this morning, same as last week. And honestly, I'm really just going to preach through through the second verse, verse 2. And then I, I do hope to wrap up just for the teaching part a little early, because I want to leave you kind of with an illustration, walk you through an illustration of how what we're teaching today actually happens in day-to-day life, so you can leave out of here practically equipped to be transformed for the glory of God. So, so the question becomes this. How do we more consistently choose to glorify God instead of gratify our sinful flesh in day-to-day, moment-by-moment decisions? That, that's what we're after uh, this morning. All right? So let's find out here. Romans chapter 2. We're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 uh, this morning. Chapter 12, verse 1 says this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, uh, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so last week I share with you, uh, just to recap, because these are connected last week, uh, verse 1 is God's expectation. Uh, God says, hey, listen, uh, present yourselves. 
Lay yourself on my altar. Surrender your selfish, sinful agenda to, to my glory. Present yourselves to me a living sacrifice. And I remind you of the context last week in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He introduces and greets them as brethren. So we know he's talking to Christians. And so if there's any idea that I'm just going to get saved and immediately I'm just going to be this totally transformed, changed person, no more struggle, no more wrestling against sinful habits, uh, he just wipes out because he's writing to Christians as evidenced by the context uh, in verse 1. We also learned last week that the motive for doing that is not guilt. It, it's, not, it's not shame. It's not, it's not legalistic pressure from the church that the motive of me laying myself on the altar of God and choosing to glorify Him instead of gratifying my sinful desires is simply this. It's His mercy. It's a response to the mercy of God that He saves me. And so when Paul's writing, he says, hey, so therefore, live this way. The therefore, what's it therefore? Uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is connected all the way back to uh, chapters 1 through 11. Chapters 1 through 3, you're lost and can't save yourself. Chapters 4 and 5, that he sent Christ to save us. Chapters 6 and 8, not only did he save us, he wants to transform us for his glory. And so he says, as a result of all that God's done for you, as a result of the mercy of God, you live this way. You present yourselves. And so that's what we looked at last week and connected. So last week was God's expectation. We learned the motivation, all of those things. But this week, here's what we're going to answer. How do you do that? Like, like, how do you move past um, getting fired up and hearing a sermon? And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to live for the glory of God more consistently. And then I get in the car with my kids and I just lose my marbles, right? Or I go back to work and I just tell, you know, whatever the case is. Or I lash out in anger or I just find myself in these sin patterns. What, how do you win that battle more consistently? How do you present yourselves as a reasonable response to God's mercy on a more consistent level? And so that's exactly what we're going to this morning. We are going to learn the process God has designed between gratifying our sinful desires and living for God's glory. It's a process of what has to happen if we want to win that battle on a, on a more consistent basis. So Paul basically tells us what's God's expectation. Verse one, what the motivation is in verse two. He says, here's what that has to happen if, if that's your heart's desire. This is what it looks like uh, in verse two. All right. And so uh, incredibly practical. He basically says, here's something you shouldn't do. Here's something you should do. And then if you don't do that and you do do that, this is what will happen. Right. All right, so uh, Romans chapter 12, let's start off with basically something what he says uh, in this passage is here's what not to do. And so Ralph the Batty says this, do not be squeezed into the world's mold. Do not be conformed to this present evil age. Do not be conformed to, the, to this world. Do not be squeezed into the world's mold. Look at the beginning there again of uh, chapter 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. Now, the end of chapter 1, what he's saying is this. He's saying, listen. In light of the mercy of God, in light of the fact that God saved you when you didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response to that mercy is to lay down your life at his feet, to surrender to whatever it is, to place yourself on God's altar. And if you want to accomplish that, here's something you cannot do, because if you do this, temptation will overwhelm you and you'll crawl off the altar over and over and over again. And so what's the thing he says not to do? Beginning in chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed. Uh, to this world. Now, my guess is that some of you grew up in a church environment where it seemed like the pastor only had one message and he just preached it in a variety of ways. And that one singular message was, don't be worldly. 
Like, there were lots of examples of worldliness. There were lots of reasons you shouldn't be worldly. There's lots of things God will do if you are worldly. And there's lots of things, all this kind of, and so, but it just kind of seemed like the same message over and over and over. And the message was, don't be worldly. Don't be worldly. Don't be like the world. Right? And, and, and little phrases and cliches come out. Let's see if you can uh, complete this sentence. Uh, you sh- we should be in the world, but not... Yeah, like you can even finish the sentence, right? Because you've heard that. Like if you didn't grow up in church, you're thinking that doesn't even make sense. How is that possible, right? But if you've been in church a long time, you've heard that message so often that you can finish that sentence. And so there was all these things. And so the reality is, my guess is that for many of you, uh, you have sat under a sermon. And let's just be honest, an angry sermon or two about worldliness. Have anyone ever heard an angry sermon on worldliness? Anyone? Yeah, some of you still can. Some of you have tears in your eyes still right now. And they gave all these examples and they were so clear in what that looked like that, that for some of you, you were convinced that the door to hell looked eerily similar to the door of the movie theater. Like some of you thought the unpardonable sin was playing Uno. Some of you thought that if you went to a dance, listen, hear my heart this morning. Dancing is not poor. Dancing is sinful. I just want to clarify. All right. And so you had all these ideas of where you could go and what you could do and what you could wear and what you looked like and all this. Because if you did those things, you were not a worldly person because you were in the world, but you were not to be of the world. So, so how fun would it be if we all got together and wrote down a list of everything we'd been told was worldly? Right. Imagine a list we could come up with. And the interesting thing is this, is that when I talk to people about this issue, is that many of them can give you the examples of worldliness. But they can't articulate the doctrine. Like they're not sure what the Bible's really teaching or what that means or even where it's at in Scripture. But they know that these, this is what it looks like. I don't understand it, but when it shows up, this is what it's wearing. This is where it's found at, okay? And so, so here's what's interesting. Because uh, the reality is simply this. It, it does say, it does say, do not be conformed to the image of this world. It does say, do not love the things of the world in 1 John Scripture does say that we're to come out from among the culture and live separately. Listen, the Bible does this thing. So what does it actually mean when it talks about living as a worldly uh, Christian? Well, here's what's interesting. When we talk about the idea of worldliness and look at it from from the biblical perspective, it really has very little to do with external things. Do you know that? Like the external things may be the overflow of a person who is not worldly. But at the end of the day, listen, you cannot go to all those places and not wear all those things and do all those things and still be a worldly person in your heart. And so that may be the overflow, but that doesn't not at all totally what the scripture teaches what it is. And so so what exactly does scripture mean? So I want you to listen close because because I'm going to learn you something this morning. All right. Here's what the scripture means when it talks about the world and avoiding worldliness. It has very little to do with activities, very little to do with activities and everything to do with how you think and what you value. And so when scripture talks about the world, it's coming to a place not where I avoid these certain activities or do these, whatever the case is externally, it's coming to the place where I don't value the things that the godless culture around me values. And so the reality is some of this now, those externals may be the overflow of my values. But hear me this morning. You can do all the external things and not have a heart that loves God anymore. Not, not God, give God a single thought in your daily life. But I'm doing all these things so, I'm, so I don't have to be classified as worldly. But worldliness has everything to do with what you think and what you value. So several commentators have articulated this idea in the, the, the following ways. Listen to what they said. 
uh, conformity to this age or worldliness, same word in the Greek, their age and world conformity to this world is to be wrapped up in the things that are temporal to have all of our thoughts oriented to that, which is not eternal. If our plans and ambitions are connected to this life alone, then we are worldly people indeed. Another writer said it this way, said to think worldly is to think within a frame of reference bounded by the limits of our life on earth. To think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind focused on how directly or indirectly to a man's eternal destiny. The great Bible teacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, by the word world, the New Testament means life as it is thought of, organized and lived apart from God and without being governed and controlled by him. And last but certainly not least, uh, the great Bible scholar Brad Cunningham said this to live as a worldly person is to live without eternal perspective. Listen, the worldly person is not the person who doesn't do these things over here. Listen, the worldly person is the person who all their hope, all their value, all their ambitions, all their efforts, all the things they're working for and hold dear to them are in the temporal values of this worldless or godless culture. It's when all these things, listen, that I'm living not for God's glory, not for eternal impact. It's when I'm living and all my hopes, dreams, ambitions are for me and this world and what happens on my temporal time on earth without a single thought of eternal impact and the glory of God and the spread of the gospel. Listen, the worldly person gets a job and says, how much money can I get? And how much pleasure can I get from the things I buy with the money I get? Listen, the, the, the eternally minded person says, how can I use this as a vehicle to provide for my family and honor God and bless others in the process? How can I use my workplace as a mission field? That Listen, that's living as an eternally minded person. So you can have, listen, you can have all the right externals and never think about eternity and God's glory. And you are as worldly as the person you see out in some godless culture. And so when scripture talks about that, that's exactly what it's talking about. The worldly person is greedy because they think, how much more can I get from this life? The eternal perspective person says, how generous can I be towards the kingdom of God advancing the gospel? The worldly person says, how can I make a name for myself and be famous? The eternally focused person says, how can I make the name of Jesus famous? The worldly person values money and fame and achievement at the expense of others because those are the values held up in the world around us as deemed as successful. And the eternally focused person is constantly asking, how can I navigate my life in a way that impacts eternity for the glory of God? Living worldly, the Hebrew word for the person who lives worldly, it's interesting. You just have to trust me on this. The Hebrew word uh, is pronounced Kardashian. Trust me, I'm a pastor. Trust me. It's Hebrew. So when a, we talk about being worldly, listen, it may show up in some externals. It may show up. But if the externals are the end of the process of being godly, listen, you've totally missed the boat. Because worldliness is a thought pattern. It is a thought life. That when I come to a place where more than glorifying God, more than living for his eternal glory, I'm obsessed with what the culture around me is obsessed obsessed with. And I spend all of my energies in life pursuing the things that a godless culture values at the expense of living for God's eternal glory. That's what the Bible means when it talks about do not love the world. Do not love the things that culture values that are godless. That's what it's talking about. That's what he's describing there. 
And so first off, he says, hey, listen, I want you to be changed. I want you to experience this. I want you to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. And here's something you shouldn't do. Uh, don't be conformed to this world. Why? Because I can't lay myself on the altar of God and say, God, use my life. And at the same time, be obsessed with what the godless culture around me is obsessed with. So that's why he, he said you can't do it. Uh, scripture says in James that the double minded man is unstable in all his ways. Scripture says that you cannot love God and man or, or material things. And so he says, do not be conformed to this world and the thought pattern and valuing the things that the godless culture around you values. Now, let me just give a word of warning before we move on to the thing we should do. That's what not to do. Here's the reality, because on one side, he says, hey, listen, don't be conformed. Scripture clearly says flee from temptation. But then there's also the responsibility of our lives, according to the Sermon on the Mount, to be salt and light in the culture around us. And so how, how do I not be conformed to the world, but I, but I engage the world with the gospel, how those kinds of things. Listen, you've just got to be honest about yourself and where you are in your spiritual walk, because in every context where there's temptation, you've got to be honest about the fact that you're either going to be influenced by the world or you're going to be the influencer for the glory of God. And so you've got to ask yourself an honest question, say, listen, if I work in this workplace environment, Am I going to be influenced by what they're asking me to do for the sake of profits? Or am I going to be an influencer? And so therefore it's wise in this social environment, whatever it is. Am I going to be tempted and influenced by the culture around me? Or am I going to be an influencer and turn these things for the glory of God and be salt and light in that, that context? And so Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Hey, listen, if you're going to lay yourself on the altar of God and live for His glory then do not be conformed to the world's way of thinking. Do not value what the godless culture around you values because you cannot serve two masters. And so that's the thing he says you sh- shouldn't do. And so sometimes we think that I can do that and I can, I can influence people. We end up being the ones who are influenced. And Proverbs gives a warning. Uh, Proverbs says this, what man can take hot coals to his chest and not be burned? And so he says, do not be conformed. That's the what not to do if you want to experience real lasting change from the inside out. So that's what not to do. Uh, but here's the thing that you should do. All right. Here's what you should do. And, and second, we find the text is simply this is let the word change how you think. Let the word change how you think. Look at verse one again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, writing to Christians by the mercies of God. There's the motive of the whole thing, not guilt, not legalism. It's God's mercy. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Okay? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's, that's what he's saying. He said, listen, the, 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 the way you present yourself as a living sacrifice is you come to a place where the pattern of your thoughts has been renewed. It's changed. It's It's different. You no longer value those things because you no longer think about those things. You're thinking about eternal things. And so the things that are temporal have such little value to you. There's such little attraction to those things. The word renew here uh, in verse 2 is in the present tense. So what does that mean? It means it's an ongoing process. That for the majority of people, it's not like, listen, I got saved and I received Christ. And then I started thinking totally different about everything. Like I had a whole new different pattern of thoughts. Now, that does happen at times, right? Those are those anecdotal successes. Uh, God can absolutely hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. God can hit a home run with a broken bat. But that's not the normal process that God uses to change people. Yes, there are people who says, listen, I was bound up in, in addictions and all these kinds of things. And God totally delivered me. And God can and does do that. But the reason we know those stories is because they're so rare. The normal process is I receive Christ. 
And I want to change, but the old man inside of me is waging war against the new man scripture talks about. And so the process where I'm getting stronger and changing and changing and presenting myself as a living sacrifice more consistently is verse two. Avoid the being conformed to the world and renew your minds. And the word renew there is in the present tense. Why? Because it is an ongoing process. Do you know how when the time comes when God expects you to no longer live and change out of renewed mind? There's a word in our, our language that, that defines and describes that time. It's called dead. That's the time when God expects you to no longer renew your mind and, and grow and change for his glory. And so the idea here is that when God looks at this and so God renews it, it's an ongoing process. But what does that actually mean? It means that sometimes uh, God delivers people from habits but then sometimes it's a struggle to get out of those habits. They really receive Christ, but it's hard to break some bad habits. It, listen, it doesn't mean as well that God changes uh, your, your, your base personality. That God renews your mind so you're no longer even the same person. The same base personality is no longer there. So it's not like, you know, if you're a type A personality. Listen, I've got some bad news for you. Uh, God doesn't uh, save people uh, who are type B's to change them to type A's, all right? And that's what every type A person thinks. They look at a type B person and they just look at them and think, what's wrong with them? They need to get saved. So it's not even God changing my base personality. It's not even God no longer struggling against those habits. But it's God taking all those things. And through the power of his word and the power of his spirit, sanding off the rough edges so that my character can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ on a more consistent basis. According to Strong's Concordance, the renew in the Greek literally means a change of heart or life. The word heart and mind uh, have similar meanings in the original language. It's the, the inner person, the immaterial part of you. It's the seat of emotions and will and intellect and all of those things. And so he, listen, he just gave me the answer. He just said, if you no longer want to just grit your teeth, or you no longer want to just change because some legalistic pressure from your church, so you feel guilty if you don't change, you feel shame. If you don't want to change or if you don't want to sit back and say, oh, I wish I wouldn't do that over and over. And I'm never going to do it. And I make a promise to those that hurt in God. I'm never going to do it. And I do it again. And then just that process over. And so listen, if you want to change on the inside, your mind, the immaterial part of you, you've got to have a renewed mind and live out of that truth or you will never change. You will never change apart from that process. You see, that sounds like a lot of work. You know, what I've discovered in my life is that I enjoy the fantasy of a desired outcome more than the hard work to get there. I like the idea of a perfect marriage. I'm not willing always to sacrifice my selfish motives to get there. I like the idea of being in fantastic shape. I'm not crazy interested in working out. I like the idea, I like all the ideas of desired outcomes. But oftentimes I find myself not so much liking the results in getting there. And so, so you sing and sing, listen, a renewed mind and presenting myself as a living sacrifice. And man, that sounds like a lot of work. And those kinds of, so, so what's going to happen if I do that? Listen, the answer is in the text. It's always in the text. Look at verse 2. What's he say? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'll tell you that happens in a minute. So that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's what will happen. Now, now, let me explain what it means. When he talks about the perfect will of God, 
You know what comes into our mind? Like, like questions like, well, who should I marry? Uh, what career should I choose? You know, what's the perfect will of God? Uh, should I get a cat or a dog? Let me just answer that before. If you're saved, you get a dog. This one should be for like what, 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 is, what, what is he describing there? J. Vernon McGee, who's Bible teacher, is now with the Lord, uh, used to have this phrase. And he used to say this. He said, uh, let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kids can get them. Let me take something that's difficult and make it so easy that even, even a child can understand. So, so let me take this idea of the, the perfect will of God here at the end of verse 2 and put the cookies uh, on the bottom shelf. What this means is this. Renew your mind so that you can discern what pleases God instead of being given in temptation by your flesh. Renew your mind so you can discern what pleases God when tempted to do what pleases your sinful flesh. Now that's simple to understand. Why is that so hard to do? Because here's what the scripture says. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Only the person living with renewed mind. Only the person whose mind has been renewed with the truth of God's word can come to a place and say, you know what? I don't know what to do here, but I'm not going that direction because I think that's the culture around me caving in. I'm not going here. I think that's the sinful desires of my own broken heart that's deceiving me. And so the only way the person cannot give into that deception by our own hearts is to come and say, you know, what? in this context, this is what would please God and be discerning about that. Yeah. Here is the $64 million question. How? How does that happen? Like, how does that actually work? Like, what has to happen for this actually to work where I'm no longer, uh, you know, crawling off the altar? I'm no longer gratifying the desires of my sinful flesh. I'm no longer being conformed to the image of this world. I'm, I'm, I'm renewing. How does that actually happen? How do I really, really change? good. Here's how I want to illustrate this for you. And then we're done today. The reason you do what you do in life, the reason the people around you do what they do. You ever wondered that? Why do they do that? I find myself asking that question a lot more about others than I do my own self. Why do they do that? Why do I do that? I, I hate myself at the end. Why do I do that? Because the Bible is so clear. Listen, humanistic psychology says, well, listen, the reason you do that is because of the environment around you. But listen, we know, all, all know people who have risen above their environments who have done great things. So that's not true. Scripture, matter of fact, takes just the opposite approach. Scripture says the reason you do what you do is because what you do is the overflow of what's in your heart. The reason an angry person explodes in anger is because their heart is filled with anger. The reason a lustful person says crude things is because their heart is dominated by lust. You say, Pastor, where is that at? Where do you find that in the Bible? Listen, Proverbs 4.23, my favorite Bible verse. Proverbs 4.23 says this, above all else. Now, now think of that. Think of all the wisdom and everything that Scripture teaches. Above all else, guard your heart, for it alone determines the course of your life. That whatever I allow to dominate my heart, that drives the decisions and the actions that I do. So guard your heart. Why? Because it drives the course of your life. And so whatever you do, whatever I do, is simply the overflow of our hearts. And so when I'm living the spirit for life and my heart is saturated with Christ and His presence, guess what? I'm doing what brings Him glory. But when I allow an idol to take root in my heart, 
whatever that idol is, it's lust or affirmation or affection or whatever the case is, then I do whatever feeds that idol because that idol has saturated my heart. So that's exactly why I do what I do. So how does this actually happen? Practically speaking, here's what happens. How does our heart deceive us? If my life is the overflow of our heart, and sometimes the overflow is I'm fooled by my own heart, Jeremiah 17, 9, how does our heart deceive us? It's through this little God-given thing that we call emotions. Now listen, emotions aren't wrong. They're a gift from God. God wired us up. I believe that God even wires up the base of our personality. According to Psalm 139, when it talks about I've uh, interwoven your innermost parts in the Hebrew language, that was the heart, mind, and will is what that thought was. And so emotions are not a bad thing. Listen, they're God-given things. But what happens is this, is that emotions can take the truth that we know and emotions are so strong and they grip us and we receive that truth through the filter of our deceiving emotions and it gets distorted and we say, well, that won't be so bad or God probably doesn't care. And I start living out of that wrong truth, that lie. And so I need to make an important decision in my life. So here's what happens for everyone in the room this morning. What happens is this, if my life is the overflow of my heart and whatever I'm doing is the overflow of my heart. Then here's how your heart gets filled. It either is emotions flooding up. Do we not use that language in our culture? I just felt anger creeping up on me. And before I knew it, I was just out of my mind. I just feel that bitterness just rising up inside of me. And so our emotions are flooding our heart from the bottom, just rising up inside of us. And if we have nothing else to press those down and live up, guess what? They'll fill our hearts to the place where the overflow will be all those emotions. Do we all not know people whose lives are dominated by their emotions, powerless against them? And some of them are even Christians. And so how do I combat that? By renewing your mind with the truth of God's word, by studying and memorizing and meditating on the truth of Scripture. You say, what good does that do? Because here's what happens when my emotions begin to rise up and fill my heart and get ready to overflow. The weight and truth of God's word pushes it down and says, no, live out of this, not out of what you feel. And emotions are unchanging and volatile and the word of God never changes and is consistent. And so when those emotions begin to rise up inside of me, I call to mind the scripture that I've stored away in my mind and it presses down and says, no, 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 I know what you're feeling. I know what you're struggling with. But remember what the truth of God's word says and the weight of that truth presses down those emotions and I live out of that truth instead of the emotions and the overflow. So for example, when anger begins to well up inside of me, when I just know I'm getting ready to blow and just overflow, the truth that I've stored in my mind, the weight of the truth in Proverbs 15:1, which says a soft answer turns away wrath, but an angry word will stir up more anger. No, 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 I'm not going to give an angry word because it stores up more of the truth of God's word. I'm living out of that. When the emotion of lust fills up my heart and tempts me, the truth of 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 that says this is the will of God, that you would refrain from sexual morality. That truth presses down on that emotion and the truth has weight. And so I live out of the truth more consistently. When the emotion raises up, the tide of unforgiveness starts to fill my heart. The truth of Ephesians 4, 32 begins to press back and say, no, no, no. Forgive others just as God in Christ forgave you. When the emotion wages up inside of me and I want to lash out with a critical word. 
The truth of God's word in Ephesians 4, 29 says this. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And yes, I'm angry. And yes, I want to say that to you. But at the end of the day, it's not the emotions welling up my heart. It's the truth of God's word pressing down. And I live out of that truth. Hear me this morning. The only thing with enough weight to push down your strong emotions is a renewed mind on the word of God. That's it. That's exactly how it works. Now, here's the problem. Some of you this morning are genuinely saved, but have no power in your life. Because you're not storing away the truth of God's word in your heart and mind. And when those emotions flood up, you've got no weight to push them back down. You are powerless against your emotions. And listen, you will lose that battle every single day time and you'll be the person who says i don't know why i do that i don't want to do that i feel terrible i promised god to everyone else i'll never do it again and i do it again but you never renew your mind with the truth of god's word hear me this morning i'm gonna make a word of prophecy you'll do it again and you'll make the same promise and you'll break it and you'll feel horrible and you'll vow to never do it again and if you don't renew your mind you'll do it again paul says present your lives a living sacrifice oh i want to I want to. But every time I do that, I don't crawl back off the altar and do what I want to do. Okay, then here's how not to do that. Don't be conformed by the godless culture around you. Don't be conformed by, don't value what they value. Live with eternal perspective. Okay, 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 I won't do that. What else, what else? Renew your mind with the truth of God's word. Hear me this morning. The most spiritually profitable thing you will do is not reading your Bible for five minutes in the morning to get a Jesus thought to get your day started. The most spiritually profitable thing you'll do is to study the word of God, memorize the word of God, and meditate on the word of God. Why? Because that's what renews my mind. And a renewed mind is how I discern the will of God in every situation when the culture tempts me and my emotions and my own heart deceives me. That's how this whole thing works. That's how it works. And the sad thing is this, is that for many people, this is not the key. It's, it's good for getting to heaven, but outside of that, it's a paperweight. And they wonder why they experience such little personal change, despite really being saved. The reason is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This is powerful. Powerful. The old poet said that even though the cover is worn and the pages are torn, and in places it bears traces of tears, yet more precious than gold is this book worn and old that can scatter and shatter my fears. This old book is my guide, is a friend by my side. It will lighten and brighten my way. And each promise I find soothing gladdens my mind as I read it and heed it each day. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. It is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It is inerrant, it is perfectly preserved and infallible. And it will change your life from the inside out if you let it. I invite you to bow your heads this morning if you would.